0: Please open with me to your, in your Bibles to John's Gospel. The gospel according to John, chapter 7. You can find that on page 893. If you're using a pew Bible. We'll begin reading today in verse 14 from John, chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body? Well, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do thank you for your word, and I pray that you would use it now to glorify yourself and to bring glory to your name inside of all of our hearts. I pray that you would transform our wills so that they will to do your will, that we might all the more behold the glory of our precious Savior. Lord, deliver us from where we are blind to seeing Him. Send Your Spirit to transform us from within and give us grace to walk with each other in the days ahead, pointing one another more and more to the One who's revealed here, Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Jesus goes public in Jerusalem in our passage this morning. Verse 14 says that about midway through the Feast of Booths, which is about eight days long, Jesus goes up into the temple and begins teaching. And at first glance, this seems to contradict some of the things we saw last week in his interaction with the disciples. If you just would, just read with me again verses 2 to 8. We saw last week, Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, and so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see your works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. The disciples wanted Jesus to go up to the feast publicly... ...to perform miracles. They wanted Him to to make His presence known. Not because they truly believed that He was the Messiah... ...but because they loved the praise of men. There were worldly motives behind their instructions to Jesus. It's what we looked at last week. The worldly motive of self-promotion filled their hearts... ...so that what they really wanted was to ride Jesus' coattails into Jerusalem... ...for their own praise instead of His... So Jesus told them he wasn't going up like that. Jesus doesn't cater to our worldly motives. He exposes them for what they are. They are evil. And that doesn't change once we get to verse 14... ...when Jesus goes up into the temple. Just because he finally goes up to the feast... ...and then goes public in the temple... ...doesn't mean the desire for human praise... ...has just gotten the best of Jesus... He can't resist it anymore. He already told us in chapter 5, I don't receive glory from people. Meaning he doesn't... He's not driven by the applause of man. He's only satisfied with the glory that comes from God. And then also notice that Jesus doesn't go up to the feast on his brother's terms... They wanted him to go up in public. Verse 10 says that he went up first, not publicly, but in private. And then once he decides to go public, he doesn't go public to do a bunch of miracles. Verse 14 says that he goes up to teach, not to perform miracles. So Jesus isn't operating on his brother's agenda. He's not operating on the world's agenda to show them his stuff. He goes on his father's agenda in humility and to teach. And this never goes over very well with the Jews. There's already been a couple of more times in the Gospel of John where we've seen Jesus teaching in the temple. And both times the Jews haven't liked it. It's even uh, further confirmation of the way he this, got, this entire gospel began. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. In chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple... ...and he tells them what he's doing... ...and why he's cleansing the temple. And the Jews don't like it. They demand that he prove his authority. Which Jesus then proves by telling them he's got power to cleanse... The, ...he's got the authority to cleanse this temple... ...because he's also got power... ...to raise his own body from the dead and create a new one. And then in chapter 5, shortly after Jesus heals the invalid man... ...of 38 years on the Sabbath... ...the Jewish authorities cause a fuss and want him to kill him. But Jesus goes on in the temple... ...teaching the words of God in the face of their opposition. And now he's back in the temple teaching the Jews again... ...with all kinds of tension in the air... And what does he find in these Jews except more unbelief that's rooted in worldly motives that seek to rob God of his glory? When verse 15 says that the Jews marveled, we shouldn't read into their marveling any more amazement than we saw in Jesus' brothers. It's very clear their marveling is not a marveling at the eternal... Son of God, who has now become flesh. Their marveling is, is not a beholding of the precious treasure of heaven who's now come to earth. Seeing in Jesus the glory of our great God and Savior, their marveling is at best superficial and full of unbelief. This has been a pattern throughout John's gospel with the Jews. They're just like Nicodemus, marveling. ...marveling that some teacher just told him... ...a ruler of the Jews of all people... ...just told told him... ...you must be born again Nicodemus... ...if if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. (sighs) What right do you have telling me this? They're just like uh, the disciples... ...marveling that their master... ...dares to sit down... ...with a Samaritan woman... ...and teach her... ...about where to find true drink, ...and an adulterous Samaritan woman at that. They're just like the Jews in chapter 5... ...marveling that Jesus would have the audacity... ...to compare himself to the Son of Man... ...executing judgment on the earth. Their marveling isn't filled with faith. It's not favorable toward Jesus. They're not even coming to him for answers... They're still muttering among themselves about him. Notice in verse 15, it, it is, they say... ...how is it that this man has learning? And he... ...when he has never studied. It's not, how is it that you... ...have such learning, Jesus? I mean, where did you get this from? They're not directing their questions at him. They're muttering amongst themselves still. They're disturbed... This guy somehow got learning outside of their socially acceptable and recognized authorities. Verse 24 even tells us that they were judging merely by appearances instead of right judgment. I don't remember seeing this guy in class. Where's his certificate? They don't know what to do with Jesus. Jesus isn't meeting their established criteria for who's worthy to listen to. Just like similar to what we find in Acts 4 with the disciples... ...and all the authorities, the Jewish authorities take note... ...that this man, these men walked with Jesus. They don't know what to do with these guys. Same here. They don't, these guys, don't want to, they don't know what to do with Jesus. Jesus isn't meeting their established criteria... And Jesus looks right through their surface level, worldly amazement... ...straight into their hearts and addresses the matter head on. Why is it that the Jews don't believe him? It's because they love the recognition they get with their supposed law keeping. That's why they cannot believe. That's what's hindering their faith... They're not devoted to God's glory in Christ. They're devoted to their own glory in what they think is law-keeping. And so Jesus addresses the issue in three parts here. He centers their attention on God's glory. He exposes their failure to keep God's law. And then he reveals himself as God's law-fulfiller. That's kind of a map for where we're going. Jesus... ...doesn't teach to fascinate people with words. He teaches to produce faith in his hearers. So first, Jesus centers the people on God's glory. It's the first thing we see that he does. He doesn't cater to their amazement... ...and and boast in his astute knowledge. What a great opportunity for him... ...to sort of put down the other guys in the temple... ...put himself above them... He doesn't go there. He directs everybody's attention... ...back to the one who sent him. Verse 16. My teaching is not mine... ...but it is his who sent me. So Jesus didn't come from heaven... ...to make much of himself. He came from heaven... ...to make much of his father. Again, this is a pattern... ...throughout the Gospel of John. If he comes it's always the Father who sent him. If he judges, it's always the Father who gives it to him. If he's working, it's always the Father doing it through him. If he's speaking, it's always the Father supplying the words. Jesus is constantly directing people back to his Father. He wants us to understand his mission, to glorify his Father in all that he does. And so without hesitation, he directs everybody's attention back to his Father, the one who sent him. But how are the Jews supposed to discern that Jesus is trustworthy? That he really did come from God. How are they supposed to know that his teaching is actually right? That his words really represent those of Yahweh himself. That his mission comes from God. Well, he tells them in verses 17 to 18. If anyone's will... ...is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God... ...or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So if your will is in line with God's will, then you will know the truth. Whether my teaching is from God... ...or whether I'm an imposter. That's really penetrating... Jesus is saying that knowing the truth about him... ...involves more than head knowledge. More than what the appearances are. More than what they're seeing on the surface. Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. Healing people on the Sabbath. It's what they see on the surface. Knowing the truth about Jesus involves more than head knowledge... ...than a surface level acceptance of his words and work. More than an intellectual adherence to what he says... In order to know the truth about Jesus, he's saying we must have a changed will. So that our willing and our choosing and our wanting and our desiring aligns itself with God's will. He cuts right to the heart of the matter here. They don't need intellectual help. They need moral help. They need moral transformation. They need inward transformation. A spiritual heart transplant, so to speak. Not just lip service, but a renewed heart that obeys God's will. If your will, the very causal core of your being, aligns itself with God's will... ...then you'll be able to judge whether Jesus' teaching is from God... ...or whether he's a poser, speaking on his own authority... And the reason you'll be able to make that judgment call is that there's nothing more appealing or more lovely or more exciting to a will in line with God's will than the glory of God itself. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. When your will is in line with God's will, you see that Jesus is the true one because He and He alone came to seek the glory of His Father who sent Him. Jesus came from heaven to make much of God. Even if that meant humbling Himself unto death on a cross in the place of sinners to reveal the glory of God's love and the glory of God's justice. Jesus wants the Jews and He wants us to see this about Him. He is the one who seeks God's glory perfectly and reflects God's glory in all that He does on the earth. Adam had a problem with this. Unlike Adam in the garden, Jesus didn't exchange God's glory for the words of a fort-tongued liar. Israel had a problem with this. Unlike Israel, Jesus didn't exchange God's glory for a bunch of worthless idols crafted by their own hands. And we have a problem with this as well. Unlike all of us, Jesus never exchanged God's glory for the lies of our flesh that tell us we deserve the praise, we deserve the recognition, we deserve the comfort, we deserve the rest, we deserve the money, we deserve the power. Jesus sought after and lived for God's glory in everything, even when that meant helping countless sinners to enjoy His Father's glory by dying for their sins on a cross, to rescue them from slavery to their idolatry. It's because of His pursuit of God's glory that Jesus saves us. It's because He's devoted to upholding His Father's glories in justice and glories in love that He comes for us. And the Jews are missing it. The Jews don't understand this about Jesus because their wills are not in line with God's will. Is yours? Is your will in line with God's will? Or do you only pay lip service to Him on Sunday morning? Test yourself. I mean, do you affirm with your mouth Christ's sacrificial death, but refuse to take up your own cross daily in order to see God glorified among the nations? Do you affirm Jesus gave himself for the church, but do not give up your preferences to serve the well being of your own wife? Do you say that God has shown you great generosity in the cross, but are rather passive in showing the same generosity toward our neighbors? Being Christian is more than formal adherence to a creed. It's a matter of the heart, of a transformed will that seeks God's glory in everything. Otherwise, why would, be, why would, be, why would we be affirming the truth to begin with? Could it be that the affirmation is for reasons other than glorifying God... ...and instead just to serve ourselves... If that's the way we live, we will ultimately miss Jesus and his mission in the same way that these Jews did. The Jews don't understand Jesus because their wills are not in line with God's will. The glory of God is not their goal, and the religious leaders in Israel aren't helping them a bit. They think their wills are in line with God's will because they know the law. But that's what makes Jesus' following words so cutting. Despite of what they think of themselves, Jesus knows the truth. that brings up our second point. After Jesus centers the people on God's glory, he now exposes their failure to keep the law. Jesus exposes their failure to keep God's law. Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? You see what he's doing? He's highlighting the depth of their depravity. He's just laid out the criteria for judging the true teacher from the false ones. The one who seeks his own glory is false. The one who seeks the glory of God is true. But the only way you can make that choice is if your will is in line with God's will. And guess what? Your wills aren't. So you can't even make the decision. That's the depth of their depravity. God's will was made clear to the Jews in the law of Moses. You shall not murder. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here they want to kill an innocent man, Jesus, who seeks God's glory in everything. He's the very very glory of God in the flesh. So the Jews don't seek God's glory by doing God's will as it's been revealed to them... ...and that's made evident by the murder for Jesus that they have in their hearts. Of course, none of them have told Jesus that they want to murder him. They've been talking amongst themselves. But that's just the point. Jesus doesn't need them to tell him that they have murder in their hearts. He sees right through them. Jesus needs nobody to testify of man for he knows what's in them... We saw that in chapter 2. He knows these Jews even better than they know themselves. They all have murder in their hearts, and even if they haven't expressed it yet, they will. Not only will they not help Jesus once he's betrayed, but they'll also help bring about his death by releasing a murderer over Jesus and shouting to Pilate, crucify him. And Jesus calls their bluff even months before they actually murder him. Needless to say, the Jews don't like this assessment. And so they respond, you have a demon. Imagine saying that to the eternal son of God. You have a demon. Talk about the height of blasphemy here. You have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Now, their pursuits to glorify themselves come into sharper focus. Instead of responding to Jesus with repentance, instead of agreeing with his assessment that they do not keep the law, they accuse him of demon possession. You know, this is what happens... ...when everything that you're banking on to save you... ...has nothing to do with Jesus... ...and everything to do with your own efforts. As soon as someone exposes your failures... ...you get offensive. Jesus jerks the glory rug... ...right out from underneath them. Their whole lives are standing on their law keeping. And Jesus says they don't keep it. Right in front of everybody in the temple... ...and they hate him for it. You have a demon... It's just proving the murder that's in their hearts. Later on in chapter 8, Jesus exposes their their slavery to sin. And the Jews respond with more of this self-justification and hatred for Jesus. We are offspring of Abraham. How dare you say that we're enslaved to anything? We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Now we know that you have a demon. It's the way they respond to Jesus. How do you respond when this happens to you? When someone points out your sin in front of others, is there anything in you that wants to kind of lessen how bad the sin really is? Well, I mean, you said I sinned like this, but what my real intention was... You said I sinned like this, but it's not like I murdered someone... It's not like I did what that guy over there is doing. You said I sinned like this, but who doesn't struggle with that? Or maybe you don't lessen the rebellion, but you start rebuilding your self image so that at least if people find out you have sinned, they'll at least leave knowing that your good outweighs the bad. I mean, after all, look how many Bible verses I can quote. Or maybe you just give your buddy, now turned enemy, the silent treatment while you hide your anger over the fact that he pointed out you're a sinner in front of everybody. Our sinful nature, our sinful nature hates having our glory rug pulled out from under us. And to that degree, we're just as vulnerable as Christians to responding to Jesus as these Jews do here. Their desire to kill Jesus is simply the desire to preserve their own glory above God's. To preserve the approval of others instead of the approval of God. But here's the encouragement that the Bible gives us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't fool Jesus when we seek the praise of others or when we bristle at our sins being exposed in front of everybody else. Like these Jews, Jesus sees right through down into the intentions of our hearts. The response when people highlight our sins is not You have a demon. It's have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not who's seeking to kill you. It's I'm a murderer every time I've been angry with somebody or the circumstances for exposing me for the sinner that I really am. Have mercy on me. And Jesus will have mercy on you if you come to him like that. He came to obey the law where we failed to keep the law. And to suffer the penalty we deserved under the law for not keeping the law. And He came to give us a righteousness not our own... ...when we turn to Him as the end of the law. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So are you a lawbreaker this morning? Are you a glory stealer from God? Have you not loved God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Then confess your sins to Jesus. Tell Him of your self-righteousness, and He will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Third, Jesus reveals himself as God's law-fulfiller. He reveals himself as God's law-fulfiller. So Jesus has centered the discussion, the entire discussion around God's glory. He's exposed the Jews for what they really are, lawbreakers, not law-keepers. And now he reveals himself as God's law-fulfiller. And I mean that not just in the sense that he obeyed every single command of the law, which he did... ...but also in the sense that, that he's fulfilling it. He's bringing it to its intended end. Especially as that's seen in him fulfilling circumcision and the Sabbath. So the distinction between Jesus and the Jews becomes, comes to a head right here. They live for their own glory... ...through what they think is law keeping... ...while Jesus lives for God's glory through law fulfilling. You know, Jesus will say something about this later on in chapter 8, but even right here we get, we really get a sense of who's really living the demonic lifestyle. The one living the demonic lifestyle is not Jesus. The one living the demonic lifestyle, the Jews. It's the Jews who desire to destroy the one who brings God, bring God's Brings God glory by bringing all of his purposes to pass. That's demonic. All Jesus needs to prove his point about their murderous and devilish hearts is one work that he did back in chapter 5. He's going to use this as an example when he healed the invalid man of 38 years on the Sabbath day. That's the work he's referring to here in verses ...21 to 23, and the work that ticked them off to begin with. And let's read read them together. Verse 21. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? What's Jesus getting at by drawing the comparison between them circumcising a man on the Sabbath and him healing a man on the Sabbath? He's showing them that in their own desire to keep the law, they've totally missed the deepest intent of the law and have therefore perverted it ...abused it, and hated God's will revealed in it. The law wasn't meant to be an end in itself... ...as they had made it to be. The law of Moses was always subordinate... ...to God's purposes to the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... That's why he gives them the little note there. Not that circumcision is from Moses, but from the fathers. The law wasn't the be all and end all for Israel. Sure, it marked them off as a covenant people from the rest of the nations. It revealed God's will for his uh, geopolitical nation. But it was always and ultimately a pointer to God's greater redemption in the seed of Abraham. So just, we've got the promise given to the fathers over here, and they're all coming to their head in Jesus. The law of Moses is over here in, in God's plan. It's only serving a much greater end, a much greater goal. It's subordinate to God's promises to the patriarchs. It was always and ultimately appointed to God's redemption in Jesus This is very much the same thing Jesus told them in chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think... You search the scriptures, the law, the law of Moses. You search it. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it's me that they point to. They bear witness about me. If you really believed Moses, you would believe my words because Moses wrote about me. We see this in Galatians 3 as well with Paul. The law was added because of transgressions until... That's a big word. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, namely Jesus Christ. Therefore, everything in the law was to be read in light of God's promise to Jesus. God's promise to send his Christ, his Messiah, his Savior, into the world. And that includes the way they view circumcision and the Sabbath. But that's not how they're reading the law. They've perverted the law. These Jews do all that they can to obey Leviticus 12.3. On the eighth day, the flesh of the male child's foreskin shall be circumcised. They do all they can to obey. Leviticus 12. And if the eighth day of the child's life fell on a Sabbath... ...they did everything to ensure that baby is still going to get circumcised. Got to uphold the law. But they perverted it by priding themselves... ...for keeping that circumcision law on the Sabbath... ...while totally missing what circumcision and the Sabbath were ultimately about... Not wearing circumcision as your badge of honor. But God sending his Messiah to bring the day of rest from sin and vain striving through the circumcision of our hearts. That's what it pointed to. The Jews were so busy boasting in their own circumcisions that they missed the only circumcised male child who could truly save them: Jesus. The Jews were so worried about the law for their own glory that they missed the only Jew who fulfills the law truly for God's glory. They're totally content with their circumcised babies on the Sabbath, but could care less about the total healing from all sickness and sin and separation from God in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus came to reverse the colossal effects of the fall, to die for sinners, remove their curse, rise from the dead, gather a multitude from all nations and ensure their final entrance into God's peaceful presence and a new creation where they will have new bodies that glorify the Lord forever apart from sin and sickness. And the Jews miss him to keep up their appearances. That's an old TV show. ...that my wife sometimes watches. It's called Keeping Up Appearances. And it's about this lady... ...who just spends her entire life... ...just vainly pursuing... ...the praise of men. Keeping Up Appearances. That's what these... ...Jews are doing... ...and they miss Jesus. They're thrilled about... ...fixing one member on a boy... eight days old... ...and cannot see that Jesus has fixed every member on a 38-year-old man... ...as a sign of our restful fellowship with God... ...which has arrived through Jesus Christ. You see, their desire to promote their own glory... ...through what they think is law-keeping... ...has led to a very surface-level understanding of God's purposes in the law... ...and it keeps them from making right judgments about Jesus... He hasn't come to undermine God's law, but to fulfill God's law... ...so that lawbreakers like us can be saved. But they totally miss the point, and they get angry at him about it. So the question then comes back on them in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And because we know the purpose of John's gospel, the question is on us as well... What's your judgment of Jesus? Are you judging him by appearances or are you judging him with right judgment? Do you see him as merely a good man or do you see him as a great savior? Are you trusting a life taker like Satan or sin or idols or all the people who are enslaved to them? Or are you trusting a life giver like Jesus? Is your life determined by those who pursue their own glory, or is it determined by the one who pursues God's glory in everything, even when it means His humiliation for your salvation? The Holy Spirit, through John, tells us who the trustworthy one is. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. Without believing you won't have life in His name. So admit your own failure to keep God's law. Admit that you are a sinner to the core. Admit that your will is often bent on serving yourself instead of the glory of God. And then trust in God's law fulfiller, Jesus Christ. He became a servant to the circumcised... To show God's truthfulness. To confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, the fathers. And in order that the Gentiles, people like you and me, might glorify God for His mercy. He came to center your life on the glory of God in Christ. Which we forsook in the garden. And cannot... Get or obtain on our own. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. He came to center our lives on the glory of God in Christ. That's what ultimately transformed the lives of a few of these Jews that He's speaking with. Not all of them remained in their unbelief. Many of them were saved. God even appointed a few of them to write some of the books of the New Testament. John being one of them. What was it that changed them? What was it that transformed them? That gave them that new will that we spoke of earlier? I want to just point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face... because of its glory, which was being brought to an end... will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory... For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... ...he's talking about the law... ...the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory... ...has come to have no glory at all... ...because of the glory that surpasses it. He's talking about the glory of God in the gospel. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant... Think of the Jews talking to Jesus here in the temple. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that law of Moses, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. What transformed some of these men? They turned to the Lord, they turned to the Lord, they beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. as John began, as John opens his his gospel. The Word of God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen... The veil was lifted from John's eyes. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. God's grace, revealed in the glory of Jesus... Change them, not more perverted law-keeping. God's grace revealed in the glory of Jesus opened their eyes, not their own self-efforts. And God's grace revealed in the glory of Jesus is what will change us as well. This is why I titled the message, Loving God's Glory in Christ is True Living. The Jews were loving their own glory... And we're cut off from eternal life because of it. That's not living. When you're cut off from God and under His wrath, that's not living. Eternal life comes with the forgiveness of your sins and fellowship with God. The Jews were loving their own glory and it was cutting them off from true living. But those who love God's glory in Christ, who center their lives on Jesus' glory and not their own, they enjoy eternal life. True living. They will be transformed, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. Like we saw in Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Sorry, we didn't read it. Actually, to get there. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to ...to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's where transformation takes place. Beholding the glory of Jesus Christ... ...and that's where true living takes place. So keep looking to Jesus' glory this week... When you open your Bibles, ask God the Holy Spirit to shine in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Speak of Christ's excellencies often to one another. That's why God has brought you into a community. He hasn't saved you to be alone. He saved you to be with others who point you to God's glory in Christ often. Speak of Christ's excellencies to one another so that a clear vision of Jesus' glory may never be far from your minds. And pray often that God will show you more of His glory in Christ as we press on until we see Him face to face. And if you're not a Christian, if God's glory in Jesus isn't something you cherish, my exhortation is the same. Ask God to show you to open your eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Ask God to give you a new will. A new will. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Ask God to give you a new will, a new heart, so that you can discern the truth about Jesus. He will not turn down your request. He sent His Son to die for your reconciliation with God. And his blood is too precious for him to overlook. Cry out to him, and he will save you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask that you would save all of us from our vain striving and our self efforts and our perversion of your word and your truth and your will revealed in Scripture. And give us the grace of humility. That we might continue looking to and trusting in our law-fulfiller, Jesus Christ. Who came to pursue your glory where we did not. That we might end up enjoying your glory in the new heavens and the new earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.